listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. What'd you guys think of that video? <laughs> yeah, the Bible Project. Go to search for Bible Project on YouTube. It's amazing. I'll tell you what, too. Twelve weeks in, in Daniel, we could have covered it in eight minutes. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> thankfully thankfully we didn't because that was like drinking water out of a fire hose <laughs> so today we decided to do something a little different um, since we haven't been doing sermon talkback we've been asking you guys to turn in questions about the series and um, give Dan some time to respond we had a lot of questions turned in so now just buckle up we'll be here for two hours we'll get through them all No, I'm just kidding. We picked six questions. If your question did not get answered and you're still asking it, please put it on here, drop it in the box. Dan's planning on making a video. Um, And also, if you have any follow-up questions, if he makes things even more confusing than they already were, ask a follow-up question. That's good. That's good. That's important. Because that's very possible. So the first question is something that we kind of, we saw a couple questions in a similar way. So here it is. So when we die, this is from last week's sermon. I can't keep it on the thing. When we die, does our body just go into the ground and wait for a long time until we get resurrected? Or do we go to heaven right away and then get resurrected at a later time? There we go. That's a good question. And and, um, Pastor Alicia's right. We got what, like three questions like this. Um, and this is from last week. So last week we looked at Daniel 12, and we contrasted resurrection hope with heavenly hope, right? Like a lot of, I think for kind of the common imagination of certainly most Americans and probably most Christians today, the hope is that when you die, you go to heaven where you hang out with God and the angels and your grandparents, and you know, you kind of hang out there um, and playing harps and things like that. And that's in the Bible. The, the Bible reflects that at multiple points, but it also talks about this resurrection hope, this idea that someday God is going to come to set all things right. Heaven and earth are going to come together, and the dead will be raised from the ground and given new bodies, and uh, God's people will spend eternity with God on a new heaven and new earth forever. And so the question is, how do these two things fit together. Um, Do you know? (laughs) No. Okay. Um, So the most honest answer I can give is the Bible doesn't spell it out for us. Um, When it comes to like what happens after you die type stuff, the Bible is pretty vague on details. We even, I mean, Jesus comes back from the dead, right? And spends about 50 days hanging out, 40 days hanging out with the, his, with his followers. And we never get a story where Jesus is like, all right, guys, so here's what happens. Like, we never, we never get that. Um, and there's basically been kind of two viewpoints throughout most of church history that people kind of fall in. One is that when you die, your soul or your consciousness leaves your body, goes up to heaven, hangs out with God for, you know, for, for a long time, you're up there for like, presumably thousands of years, um, and then someday at the end of the world, the end of history, when heaven and earth come together, you then get a new body and get resurrected. So it's kind of this like two-phase um, process. I think that's how most Christians today who are thinking about this stuff think about it. So when you die, you go to heaven, your soul goes to heaven, you hang out there for a long time, and then you get resurrected sometime in the future. 
Another viewpoint, which is not as popular today, um, although it is in certain churches, is what a lot of folks call soul sleep. That's the idea that when you die, you rest. You are not conscious, your soul stays in your body, and you rest until that end point when God comes and raises the dead to new life. Um, Those are kind of the two camps, and I don't know which is right, but what I will point you to is there is a consistent hope throughout Scripture that when we die, we are in the hands of Jesus. Um, there, you know, Jesus tells the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That sounds pretty immediate. Whether that means that like, the thief's consciousness is going to jump forward to the, to the end of the world, at the resurrection, and it feels like today, or whether that literally means today, there is a sense that you're not waiting around, you're not lost. Um, all who have fallen asleep, which is the language that the New Testament often uses for those who have died, are in the hands of Jesus. Um, so we can take... Uh, have peace in that, and I look forward to finding out, hopefully not for a long, long time, <laughs> but, but does that make sense, though? Are we tracking with kind of those two views? Absolutely. Awesome. Um, all right, question number two. The prophet Jeremiah predicted that the exile would last 70 years, but then in Daniel chapter 9, an angel tells Daniel that it will actually be 70 times 7, so was Jeremiah wrong or was Daniel wrong? That is an awesome question. You guys are a smart congregation. Um, this is a really good question. So yeah, we have, this, we have this apparent disconnection. Jeremiah, who's writing at the start of the exile, um, says it's going to last 70 years. And then um, the angel shows up and tells Daniel it's actually going to be 70 times 7. And we heard about it in the video. It's this uh, scene in Daniel 9 where Daniel is longing to go home. He looks, he opens up his Bible, he opens up the scroll of Jeremiah. He's like, oh, 70 years, we're almost there. And then the angel shows up to say, sorry, my friend, it's not going to be 70 years. Here's the verse in Jeremiah. Oh, it's up there already. Perfect. That Daniel was probably reading. Jeremiah 25, 11, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And I think with this one, I'll channel um, Obi-Wan Kenobi and say that what Jeremiah said was true from a certain point of view. Um, From from Jeremiah's vantage point, um, how long are God's people going to be out of the land? The answer was 70 years. If we start the clock, and this, these, are, these are historical events, like the Babylonians wrote about this, the Persians wrote about this, we, we can date these things. If we start the clock when the first Jewish exiles were taken out of the Holy Land and stop it when the Persians allowed the first Jewish exiles to return, it was 70 years, just about on the nose. Um, so Jeremiah nailed it. But from another point of view, from the point of view of those exiles, from the point of view of Daniel's generation, those folks who came back, the exile never really ended. Because even though they got to come back to the land, they got to rebuild their their temple and their city, they got to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's in like Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're familiar with those books at all. Um, They were still in a sense of exile. The new temple paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. And they weren't able to self-govern. There wasn't really um, a, a descendant of David on the throne. The Persians were in charge, and then the Greeks were in charge, and then the Romans were in charge. So in a very real sense, you could argue that that exile has never ended. So I will say, it depends on your perspective, but they're both right, and they're both in the Bible. So there you go. Perfect. Thank you. 
Question three. I was always taught that God would not visit the sins of the fathers upon the children. So what does this mean in light of Daniel's repenting for his ancestors' sins? Are we punished for our ancestors' sins? This is a hard one. <laughs> um, this is referencing also Daniel 9. And this beautiful prayer of repentance we get where Daniel confesses the sins of his ancestors. And that led us to talk about communal sin and multi-generational sin and how the effects of sin can compound over generations. And so this person is asking about this. You know, I thought it says that God won't visit the sins of fathers upon the children. Um, there's, there's a bunch of different verses that, that speak to this and they kind of fall into two camps. Um, I think on the next slide is the first one. Uh, this is Numbers 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but God will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. This does not make God sound very nice. And this pops up, this is actually the most quoted verse in the Old Testament, of the Old Testament. Like when the Old Testament quotes itself, it's, this verse pops up a lot. And this idea that God will punish to the third and fourth generation. But then we also find this verse in Ezekiel. The person who sins shall die. I love the Old Testament, by the way. It's so stark. Um, a child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a, of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be their own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be their own. So we find verses in the Old Testament that say God will punish evil to the third and fourth generation, and then we find verses that say no, God isn't going to punish the children for the sins of the parents. The difference between these two is usually context. When it's talking about the, the context of these passages where God is going to punish the third and fourth generation is almost always when you have repeated generational sin. When a new generation comes along that is just as idolatrous as their parents and they're repeating the same mistakes of the past, they're falling into the same traps, the same injustices over and over again, that's when God shows up and says, I'm going to punish you, not just for your sin, but for your parents' sin too. But then whenever a new generation comes along that turns the page, that repents, that stops that vicious cycle, that turns from that sin, that's where we find the passages where God says, I will not punish the children for the parents' sin. So it depends a lot on context. And to make this real, I think like a, a pressing example, at least one that I think a lot when I think about my kids, um, would be um, caring for the environment as an example. Really early in the Bible, like the opening pages, human beings are commanded to be good stewards of this world God has created. And no matter how you cut it, no matter what you think about you know, issues like climate change and things like that, it's pretty hard to ignore that over the last couple hundred years, we have not been great stewards of our environment. We have polluted our rivers, lakes, and streams. We've uh, cut down the forests. We have destroyed ecosystems. There are massive ex there's a massive extinction event happening now um, on the land and in the water, driven by human, driven largely by human activity. We have failed for a good century or two, at least, to be good stewards of our environment. And now the consequences of that, the bill that kind of our great grandparents wrote, is starting to come come due. We're starting to see effects in more dramatic ways. 
And so when I think about my kids, when I think about their kids, are they going to have clean water to drink? Are they going to see wars in other parts of the world over water and over land use? Um, we have a role to play in this. I think if we continue to fail at that charge, that first command to care for God's earth, um, that's going to continue to compound, and I worry a lot about my grandkids. But if we turn the page, if we start being good stewards, if we stop this vicious cycle that we've been in since the Industrial Revolution, maybe there's hope. That's kind of a really practical reading of this in just one example. Is, are we tracking with that? It feels weird going through all these questions without follow-ups. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, but, I was going to actually follow up that with... Yeah. You talk a lot about context um, and reading the Bible in context and how important that is. Can you just to speak to that for a moment? Sure. Um, context is going to apply in a lot of ways. Um, you've got to consider what you read in the Bible in light of what's actually going on in the passage. A lot of times folks will take one verse or a couple verses out and just use it for whatever and ignore everything else that's going on in the passage, which usually leads to some funky readings. Another place context applies, though, is the cultural context of the biblical library itself. Um, if you have a good study Bible, it's going to have an essay at the start of each book of the Bible, anywhere from like one to five pages long. It's going to tell you, here's what was going on in the world at this time. Here's the community that produced this text and what they were going through and, and what it was talking about. Outlining something like that in the, the video we watched that outlined the book of Daniel. If you watch that video and then read Daniel, you're going to understand the book of Daniel a lot differently. And you can actually download the Read Scripture app, which um, is what that comes from with the Bible Project, um, and download this app where you can pull up any book of the Bible, get a video like that talking about it, and then actually read it. It's a really awesome um, thing. So if we want to read the Bible well, we've got to read it in context. And then I also think if we, apply, if we want to apply the Bible well, we have to consider it in light of our context. Um, you can't. Christians will of, often ignore the original context, take something inspirational, and then just kind of hang our hats on that. But the Bible speaks to very real things, things that are still happening today. You know, most of the characters in the Old Testament happen to be refugees. Abraham and Sarah, Jacob, Joseph, Daniel, Moses, all these people who, you know, end up homeless and, and having to flee from their, for their lives in some instances. We're still dealing with refugees today, and the Bible has something to say about that. That's just one example, but whether we're talking about how we treat the poor or how we handle our own power and privilege that we have, like the Bible speaks to this stuff, how we treat our neighbor, what it looks like to love our enemies, our relationship to violence, like all of this is in scripture, but we have to read it in context and actually apply it to our context to see it. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, cool. Thank you. Next question. How do we differentiate between the powers and those who perpetrate them? This is another good one, um, and I stayed up late last night thinking about this one. So um, one thing that we see over and over again in the book of Daniel is the idea of the powers. Daniel is always coming up against these massive spiritual and even political global powers. He comes up against Babylon and their kings. He comes up against demons and, and uh, the, the power structures of, of the day. In Daniel's context, 
you know, when they, when they were talking about the spiritual powers, they tended to personify them. So they talked about demons. They described them looking like humans with like glowing skin and stuff like that. We still talk about the same stuff in our day, but we have a secular um, industrial culture. So rather than using demonic language, your average person on the street tends to use very mechanical language to talk about the same realities. We talk about structures. Uh, we talk about raging against the machine. We use industrial language to talk about the same kind of stuff that Daniel is up against. Um, and so I think when it comes to differ differentiating between the powers and those who perpetrate them, it's a little bit of a both and, right? Um, there's individual responsibility, but there's also bigger corporate responsibility and systems in place that sometimes have to be corrected or, or adjusted. Um, if we think about an example like the war on drugs. So for a few, a few decades ago, our government launched a war on drugs where we started taking people who had you know, trace amounts of drugs on them, pot and stuff like that, and locking them up for decades, taking them out of their communities, ending their lives basically um, to tackle the drug problem, and yet the drug problem continues. And in some communities, it's gotten even worse. That's because there is a broader system in place. You take people out of it, and someone else pops right up in, in their place. Um, you arrest small-time drug dealers, there's going to be a new small-time drug dealer popping up because there's still a system in place that needs to be broken down. Our culture focuses big time on individuals. And we tend to think if we just punish enough individuals, if we throw enough people behind bars or if we inflict enough fines, then that will change things. But the same stuff continues to happen. And if we think about um, like structural reforms, and we could, there's so many areas of life that this applies to. It applies to education reform, police reform, church reform and clergy who are corrupt or who um, abuse their power or clergy sex abuse scandals. There is always a segment of the community that focuses on the individual, just a few bad apples. If we can get bad police officers off the force or fire bad teachers or make sure that, that, um, that pastors and priests who abuse children are uh, made to pay for it, that will solve the problem. But the problem continues. It keeps happening. And that's because along with the individual responsibility, there are structures in place that these individuals are rising up through. Um, a church system that's designed to protect clergy who abuse children needs to be changed. You can arrest all the priests you want. It's going to keep happening. Um, and I do think there's some grace in this. Because along with that em emphasis on individuals, the other thing our society, our culture tends to do is when someone gets caught, when one of these bad apples gets found out, we vilify them. There is no grace. There is no room. There is no restoration. We, we pour all of our vitriol and our hatred and our anger onto them. You can look. There are very recent um, examples of this. But when we realize that there is a system in place as well, and that often the folks who perpetrate that system and use that system are often victims of it themselves, or maybe have been, how many abusers were once abused, this now all of a sudden opens up a door to grace. 
where maybe there can be restoration. Maybe, of course, an individual has to pay for their crimes, but maybe if the problem isn't them, if they're not the issue, maybe they can be restored. And that's where I think um, this distinction actually opens up some room for grace. We shouldn't be too focused exclusively on individuals or too focused exclusively on structures. Either extreme is bad. Um, but if we have both, there's a lot of room for grace that comes up. That was a lot. That was it was a, a lot. And I have a really difficult question for okay. you. And it's okay to say I don't know right now sure. and put it in a video. But then... Okay, so the problem is the powers or the system. Well, now how do we fight the powers and the system? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so that is, that's, okay, so I don't know, I don't like know the answer off the top of my head. Um, I can speak to within the church. Um, there's a reason that like our churches are governed, Baptist churches are governed very differently than some other churches. Um, there is a council that I am accountable to now, I still think personally that I have way too much power and influence. Um, like the, the wrong person in this role could exploit that. But we're all part of systems. We all, like we're all part of a community. We can look at where are the blind spots. You know, um, a system where, I'll keep it on the church just because that's what I can speak to. A system where pastors who harm their congregations are simply moved to another church is not a good system. Um, Another thing that we can do as Christians is we can be part of reform efforts, like good, nonviolent reform efforts in our community. I served on the committee here in the village that reviewed the Brockport PD's policies and procedures. It was an amazing experience. I learned so much from it. Um, there's a lot that Brockport PD is doing an excellent job on, um, and there's room to improve. Christians need to be in these um, in these conversations, and we need to be representing Christ in those conversations um, to try to help shape our society in a more Christ-honoring way. That, that's my that's my opinion. Um, I don't I don't think that's a easy answer, and it's not something we can just like flip a switch and do. Um, but maybe it'll keep us from at least vilifying um, the people who get caught doing bad things. Thank you. So be involved is really... Yeah, get involved. Go out there and get involved. Yeah, I like that. Um, so at a few points in the series, you mentioned the book of Maccabees, which is in Catholic Bibles, but not in Protestant Bibles. Can you talk more about that? And why do Catholic Bibles have extra books? I also got this question from multiple people. A few people asked me in person, and someone actually wrote it down and turned it in. So yeah, who here has heard of the book of Maccabees? Okay, a lot of us. All right. So at a few points going through Daniel, um, the book of Maccabees came up, and that's because a lot of these visions Daniel is having of these wars coming in the future, and like that king, that King Antiochus, that, that horn on the dragon, a lot of this came to pass um, in the 160s BC, and it's recorded in the book of Maccabees. Now, the book of Maccabees is a Jewish book written by Jews in between the Old and New Testament, and it's part of the Apocrypha. Um, that's what we call it, at least as Protestants. The Apocrypha is a collection of Jewish texts uh, that basically, for the most part, tell the history of what happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And historically, the Apocrypha, so like if you go back before there were Christians to like when it was just Jews reading these books, the Apocrypha was always seen as kind of Bible adjacent. Like it wasn't scripture on the same level as the law and the prophets, 
but it was valuable history um, that, that you know, Jews in Jesus' day took very seriously. Jesus would have been very familiar with the book of Maccabees. Um, and then that pretty much continued for the bulk of church history. Um, and uh, so, like Christians, some would read the Apocrypha, some wouldn't. It was kind of understood that, like, eh, this is kind of like the Bible, but it's not really, it's not quite the Bible. And if you think about it, let me grab a Bible. This probably blows our mind a little bit, but this is a new innovation in how we read the Bible. The idea of a single bound volume. We've only been reading the Bible like this for 500 years. For a good, I don't know, 2,000 years before that, both for Jews and then for Christians, the Bible was thought of as a library of books because you didn't have a printing press yet. So when you talked about the Bible, you were talking about a library. And a given church or synagogue, you might have, you know, you'll have a Torah scroll with the law on it. You'll have some of the prophets. If you're in a Christian community, you'll have some of Paul's letters and a couple of gospels. And then probably on like a lower shelf somewhere is the Apocrypha. <laughs> and it was just kind of understood that like, eh, this isn't really part of the Bible, but it's Bible adjacent. That changed 500 years ago with the invention of the printing press and the dawn of Protestants. It's our fault. <laughs> um, what Protestants did, generally speaking now, is we tried to remove human authority figures from the equation, especially Baptists. Um, we did away with cardinals and bishops and popes, and we printed the Bible like this, which I think is a really good thing, and we put it in the hands of average Christians, believing that anyone, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, reading scripture, can encounter God and live their faith. The issue when you do that is, it's kind of tricky to have a bunch of books that are kind of in and kind of not, because we, we've got to print this thing. So are they in or are they not in? And what does a baby Christian do with a bunch of books that aren't really the Bible like the rest of them? So what Protestants did is we took them out. We said, if the Apocrypha is not on the same level of the rest of the Bible, it doesn't belong in the Bible. And then for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So the Catholic Church got together in a place called Trent, and they elevated the Apocrypha and said, you know what, if the Protestants are going to take it out, then it is part of the Bible just like the rest of the Bible. And so for 500 years, Protestants and Catholics have had different Bibles. That is how it happened. Um, any follow-up? Do I need to say more about that? Well, which do you think is right? Uh, <laughs> um, so honestly, and I, and I hope this isn't a cop-out, I don't think either of them are totally right. I actually think the church and Jews before that had a pretty good system where it's like, here are these historical books that are important. They're not quite the Bible like the Bible, but, you know, they can sit next to the Bible. I'm kind of okay with that. Um, I don't think you're missing anything from your faith if you don't have the Apocrypha. Um, I would not preach on it, because I'm a Protestant. I don't think it's scripture on the same level as the rest of scripture. But if you want to read the book of Maccabees, it's not going to ruin your faith. And actually, there's a lot there that you're going to read and be like, oh. So like, for example, <clears throat> uh, the climax of the book of Maccabees. So this, this evil Greek king, Antiochus, has taken over the temple, slaughtered the priest, done all these terrible things. And then this guy named Judah Maccabees raises up an army and pushes the Greeks out of Jerusalem. And then what he does is he mounts a white horse 
and he rides it into Jerusalem. And the people come out waving palm branches, which are the, the national symbol of kind of like Jewish pride. And then he goes all the way to the temple, and he cleanses the temple, by which we mean he takes out all the pagan statues, slaughters all the, the people who are, you know, um, who are working with the Greeks, and reestablishes the sacrificial system. Does that sound familiar? Right? Palm Sunday, right? right? But Jesus rides in on a donkey. They do the palm thing. He goes in the temple, and he chases out the money changers. And then he weeps over Jerusalem, um, saying, you know, it's, it's going to happen again. You know, you're, you're do, making the same mistakes. And then they kill him. Because half the people who are in charge see him as a threat because they think he's a new Maccabee. And the other half of the people think he didn't go far enough. And so Jesus dies. That's the kind of thing you get context from a book like Maccabees. And that's where Hanukkah comes from, too, Yeah, Hanukkah right? comes from the book of Maccabees, too, that whole tradition. And I do not, I'm not familiar enough with it to really speak to it, but there was a, there a bunch of, there was a lampstand that stayed lit for a really long time. That's like the, Perfect. Yeah. All right, Apologies so, to any Jewish folks who are watching. I'm sorry. I mean, I did just hear the bells. So we have one question left. You're going to do that in a video this week? Sure, Along yeah, with any other follow-up? I could, do it, I could do it quick if we want to do it quick. Do we want to do it quick? Let's do it quick. Everybody Let's wants to. All right. Quick. Can you connect and discuss the scary passages, Daniel eleven thirty-one and Matthew twenty-four fifteen? This fits with what we were just talking about. So this is a very particular question. Daniel eleven thirty-one. It's on this next slide. Um, this is Daniel's vision of what the Greeks are going to do how the Greeks are going to wreck the temple and bring in pagan uh, statues and stuff. Forces sent by this Greek king shall occupy and profane the temple and fortress. They shall abolish regular burnt offerings and set up the abomination that makes desolate. That's King Antiochus, or one way to interpret it, who came into the temple, slaughtered the priests, put in statues of Zeus, and then slaughtered a pig on the altar, which is a big no-no. That, the Jew- Jewish folks called that the abomination of desecration, or the abomination that makes desolate. Then in Matthew, we get this next passage. This is after Palm Sunday, when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, you know, you who killed the prophets. Um, and he says, So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, and that's the same thing as the abomination of desecration, same language, Um, As was spoken by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one on the housetop must not go down to take what is in the house. The one in the field must not turn back to the coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infant in those days. You've heard this passage before, right? Like this This is a pretty famous one. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, and what he's saying is the stuff that happened under the Greeks is going to happen again, and it did. Forty years later, in the year 70, the Roman Emperor Titus rode into Jerusalem and destroyed it. He went into the temple, he slaughtered the priests. Same move as Antiochus, but now this time, instead of setting up a bunch of pagan altars and statues, he burned it to the ground. So Jesus is is drawing on this image from Daniel, this prophecy from Daniel, which was fulfilled and written about in the book of Maccabees, and he's saying it's going to happen again. You're repeating the same mistakes over and over again, which kind of ties together everything we've talked about, about intergenerational sin and all of that. Does that, are we tracking? Does that make sense? All right, that's the last one, right? If you have more, email them to me or put them on a card. Thank you, too, everyone, for great questions. That was great.
I left my next script up here. So, um, before we sing our closing song, just a reminder that there is no offering during our service any longer. Uh, if you did bring a physical offering that you'd like to give, you can drop it in one of the joy boxes located in the hallway, um, or you can always give online through our website. Um, if you are new here, we'd love for you to turn in the welcome card that I left down there. I'm holding it up right now. <laughs> um, so we can get in touch with you and send you some additional information. Please join me in prayer. All good gifts come from you, Lord, and from these riches we freely give. Use our gifts to advance your purposes in this place and for the benefit of those in need. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.